Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Richard and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne and today we're going to talk about deployed databases and how to modify them. So making changes to a deployed database solution, one that you've already developed as a non-FileMaker server, has many complex considerations when you decide to add on to it. So we've invited Fireside FileMaker friend and FileMaker expert, Mark LaRochelle, to join us in this controversial discussion. So our goal in this podcast is to provide as many different perspectives as possible so you can make the best decision for yourself on what to do when faced with updating an existing FileMaker solution. So why don't you introduce yourself, Mark, not that, uh, you know, listeners don't know who you are yet at this point. <laughs> Hi, guys. This is Mark LaRochelle from Productive Computing. Great to be on the podcast here today. It's great to have you back, Mark. Thanks. So the scenario is you've developed a FileMaker solution and you've put it up on FileMaker server in the cloud, wherever it might be, and people are using it, remotely logging on, and the client calls you up and says, I want more features. Or what happens a lot with me is I adopt a solution from somebody who needs somebody else to work on it for whatever reason, the developer is not available anymore. Uh, they don't like them and who knows what. And the client wants you to make some changes. And that's the scenario you're in. You've got a, a solution deployed and what do you do at that point? And we've got a couple of different uh, scenarios that you can do. And we're gonna start with uh, importing data. Um, I don't think anybody manually imports data anymore. I don't know what you guys think if if you manually import data at all. I do if it's just a you know it's just a simple one file to another or importing a a new file that's been sent over with some data from an external source. But generally, unless it's a specific import, most of it is either is a scripted import where you you're going through a file in terms of updating the entire file. Now, Michael, are you talking about importing a into a file that's currently being hosted and is production, the status is of, of a production type file? Yes, correct. And then you'd be importing data because you made changes in a copy of it, and now you're importing the live data back into the finalized development copy that is now in production. No, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about that, Mark. I was just talking about importing data that somebody that needed to be added to the system. They've got a new spreadsheet from a source or a new data file, and they have to import it. But that's probably not what John was talking about. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe you've, you're developing a solution from scratch, and the person had their data in a, some other program like a spreadsheet and you need to import it to get them going and then you deploy. I think that's kind of what Michael was referring to at least some of his points. Right. Yeah, I don't see that there's any point in deploying a solution without having enough data in that the customer, the client can do some work while you're developing and fine-tuning the solution until, until there's a reasonable amount of data that's been brought in. It's it's really a pointless exercise. Right. So I don't think that's what we're talking about uh, as far as manual imports. And I'm glad we went over that to make sure the people understand we're not talking about, you know, putting the data in there uh, to start off a solution. We're talking about you've got a new version of this solution 
and you want to import the data from the old version. So you may have developed it offline and put in, you know, a couple of tables and some fields and some scripts and some layouts, and they you've double checked it with sample data and test data, and and you go, okay, this thing looks like it works. So you want to import the data from the old version and the new one, and what you had to do in the old days before there was a lot of these new features you see, we're talking about decades ago, was just manually import. And it's a laborious set of steps if you have to do it over and over and over again. So if you're developing and changing things once a month, it can get very complex, which is why Michael mentioned the scripting portion of it, because that can reduce that headache of that you know, repeated importing over and over again every month. Every time you make an update, you've, you know, you've developed offline, you have to import that data. That can be really, um, you know, costly for the developer, for the client and, you know, mind bending for the developers himself. Cause it just, it's such a, I don't like to do it. I don't like to do anything twice myself. Well, it's, it's, it is or was a very cumbersome process because what you would have to do is you'd have to write effectively three scripts. And the first script goes in the current file, goes through every single table and makes sure that all the records are found and just goes through the entire solution. And then at the end of it saves a copy of that file with the, with the file name, but appended old at the end of it. And then you drop the new solution in and you could do this in one script, but I always did it in two was I went through, I ran that same script. But this time I went to each of the tables in the new file and deleted all the records to make sure it was completely empty. And then I went through the third script is go to go to a table, import the data from the old file and just keep looping through. And at the end of it, you close the old file and you're back in business. But it takes a lot of time to do that. And I ended up having to do it every time I added a table, I would append that routine for that table until it was completely finished or added a field yeah or deleted a field yeah uh, mark and i were talking offline about the old days when if you deleted a field you'd mess up your importing script because it wouldn't map correctly after that and i was asking him well, do you remember when they fixed that? Have they fixed that? I mean, it's been so long since I've actually scripted an import, uh, you know, because, you know, I wanted to make it so I could just click a button and import stuff and then modify it if I made some changes. And I finally found it appears that that delete field issue where it would unmap your field so things weren't quite mapped up was fixed in FileMaker 17 before the FileMaker 18 import redo. Wasn't that a long time coming? Oh, my gosh. It was such a, when you had a big set of data to try and map those fields and align them, it was a send me, send you cross-eyed in 10 seconds. Or if you had a file that wasn't, uh, you know, didn't have names, you'd have to just drag them up and down. And if you had 100 or 200 fields, one of them could be at the bottom and had to be all the way at the top. And you just drag and drag and drag and drag and drag. It was, it, I mean, they needed to redo the import dialogue. Absolutely. And they've done a great job on it. So, I mean, not only was it 
you know, you had to do all the dragging. But it was very hard because the dialogue box was actually very small. It was very hard to actually see the fields you were looking for some of the time. So I, I know I went up and down three or four times when I was looking for specific fields. Yeah, I used to take the, the import mapping dialogue and make it as tall as I could. So I'd have to drag as little as I, I had to because, you know, if you if your hand got tired, you might accidentally let go of the mouse and then you drop it not where you wanted it to be, the you know, the, the source field. And then it would mess, then, then whatever you dropped it on would move down to where, where it used to be and you'd have to fix that. And oh man, it's, it was, it was a, a decade, two decade uh, nightmare that uh, is ended in FileMaker 18, thank goodness. Right. Or you drop it on a field that you already mapped, and then you had to go back and redo some work because you accidentally dropped it on a field you already mapped. So, yeah, terrible. One of the reasons I have gray hair, so. <laughs> you have gray hair? Just a little bit on the sides. I call it, depending on the situation, it might be uh, Lisa and Ryan, which are my son and my daughter. Or if my wife's there, I'll say, you caused this. Or if it's FileMaker, you know, whatever fits the situation. Well, speaking of somebody who's completely white and is often called Santa Claus. You know, um, I was talking to one of my lead developers about the import situation, and she came up with uh, one scenario that she often uses, like, one: why would anyone do importing for any kind of development? And she said that, um, let's say, take a scenario where you have, let's say, 50,000 records, and you need to do a bunch of replace uh, situations on several fields in that 50,000. What she'll do is she'll export just the text, you know, bring it into a file, local FileMaker database, do all the reparations of the data, and then re-import it back as a one-time, one-off, only because that sort of thing over the wide area network takes so long because you have to traverse so many records. Yeah, and in my most common scenario for scripted imports would be moving data from one table to another in the same file. I do it quite often, and it's very handy as far as getting some data. Let's say you have some default values that you want to put inside of a related table when somebody clicks a button. You could loop through them and, and set field and all that, but it's going to take a long time. Imports much faster, and I do that quite often. But as far as scripting and getting back to what we're trying to talk about here, because you know we all like to start talking about different things, you know, it, 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 as far as importing to a deployed database because you've worked on it offline to make a new version is going to be a headache whether you're doing it manually or even scripting. We've named a bunch of different reasons, and I think the manual imports at this point are really only good for one-time scenarios, and the scripted imports are more for features and things like that, not necessarily upgrading from one version to another and getting the data over there. Right. Which is why I think the data migration assistant is so handy. Um, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about this? Because I knew you worked a lot with it and have actually a product that interfaces with it. And if you could describe it from the beginning, how it came about and that kind of stuff, that would be great. Sure. So the data migration assistant is a tool that's produced by Claris. And it's a tool that allows developers to create a clone of their developed file and then take the live data from an older file, but the data is live and that's what you need to get into that clone. And what the data migration tool does is it allows a developer to quickly or far more quickly, much more quickly, move that data into the clone, thereby creating both the latest version of a file from a development standpoint as well as the live data. 
And that works really well. Currently, the way the tool is constructed is it's constructed where you need to learn some terminal commands or some command line commands, depending on whether you're on Windows or Mac. And productive computing kind of saw that as a potential extra hurdle for most developers who don't often play in terminal or command line as a regular uh, on a regular basis. So we created a tool called uh, the FM Data Migration Assistant. And essentially, we created a course that you can get at Productive Computing University. You can take the free course, grab the file, and you have this complete solution allowing you to either drag a file in. It also handles multiple files that you're migrating. And then you click a button. It uses the tool, but we've created what's called a wrapper around that tool to make it a lot easier, a lot more straightforward with some advanced features that would otherwise be a lot more difficult to deploy using just terminal commands. I was going to say the terminal window um, is very unintuitive and intimidating to somebody who's not really familiar with it. Yeah, correct. I mean, it was birthed from, let's say, a Unix operating system. And for those who are familiar with it, it is like coming home. I mean, it's essentially what they grew up with. I'm talking traditional programmers, even anyone going to computer science school these days, they have a natural um, ease with working with terminal. I mean, it's just commonplace. It's also really popular. You know, anyone who runs a Linux server or anything like that is terminal and command line is exactly second nature to them. But to a traditional FileMaker developer, uh, me included, uh, terminal is sort of, sort of a, is a foreign body in a sense. It's not exactly uh, the most intuitive thing. It's all text in a little window. It's black and white. It's it's non-human. It's very Apple of Apple-esque or Windows, you know, modern UI. Very DOS-like. Yeah, DOS-like. You know, extremely powerful though. Once you learn the commands and once you really have a grasp of it, terminal can do things that you could otherwise not do using just traditional UI. So there, there's a there's a time and a place for it. But for most developers, they don't want to have to now learn, you know, the ropes of terminal in order to migrate data. So we created this solution and it, you know, it's been featured um, on different places, but we're, we're pretty happy with it. We get a lot of people that have downloaded it and taken advantage of it. Yeah, my uh, first experience with it, and I'm not afraid to say that uh, that I'm scared of terminal. My first experience was watching this magical data migration assistant. You know, they they would release information, pre-release information about FileMaker, and they'd show us and they say, "Hey, this is what it can do. This is going to do," and I would take a screenshot of, of what he was typing in just to make the data migration tool. And I was trying to mimic that on my solutions. I like, I mean, I scratched my head for half an hour, an hour on what exactly to type in. It's not easy to do, but I do agree. Once you get used to it, it gets easier, but with, with your tool and we try not to make this a sales thing, but with your tool, it just, it's just dragging stuff. And that's all you have to know. You do all the behind the scenes stuff, figure out the file names, put the code in front of there, do all the terminal stuff, and it makes it easy. And And I think it makes, for most people, makes the data migration assistant uh, usable. We don't have to worry about it being a sales tool, John, because Mark gives it away. Ah, there we go. Good. Correct. <laughs> also correct. Yeah, it's, com it's completely free and has been since day one. Although... There is one cost involved. You have to have a FileMaker developer subscription. That is correct. Yeah. And a few people have gotten uh, put off by that when they find out that um, the FileMaker is charging for that or Claris. But for the most part, it's a, it's a powerful tool and it's going to be used by a professional developer. So it's a professional tool in many ways. 
And it, it probably is warranted to have as a subscription with uh, the FileMaker developer. What is it? The FileMaker developer network? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's a 99 FileMaker community. Uh, FileMaker TechNet used to be called TechNet. I don't know what it's called anymore, but uh, for $99 a year, it's almost a no-brainer. Yeah, so we just start calling uh, the script workspace script maker and call it define fields again because you know what? That's what all of us grew up on, and and <laughs> you know I'm the same way. I remember it called being called TechNet. I'm like, well, geez, it's uh, it's it's been a long time when when some people don't know these different words like knowledge base used to be tech info. We could start calling it FileMaker instead of Claris too, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, see, when we're old and we have Alzheimer's and and start forgetting stuff, we'll start spouting stuff that nobody understands, you know, about about script maker and stuff. But uh, the FDS comes with a lot of other stuff, so you probably should go try and check it out um, and see what other things it offers. But you will need that before you get Mark's free tool. You can't give it away for free, so you will need that. But the point here about the data migration assistant is it makes your life of far as moving data from one version to another. Very easy, and it's very important to point out that it has to be a clone, right? Because it uses internal IDs on the tables and the fields to match things up and do all that wonderful magic in the background so that you don't have to go in and import each table. It'll do every single table and import into new ones. It'll know which fields are new, which fields aren't, which even if you change the field names, it should know everything. It just it's a it's a wonderful little tool and probably easily worth the $99, but there are other things you get with it. And it, it's far better than manually importing or scripting importing. Right. Yep. Well said. Okay, so basically what it comes down to is which method you choose for importing when you make a change to your database depends on the magnitude of the import and what you're doing. And I think we've covered that pretty well, but you know, how many tables and fields are there? Do you want to do this manually or scripting? How often are you going to do that? Um, you know, what, you know, maybe this process occurs on a regular basis, so script it. Maybe it doesn't. You know, the data migration tool is complex, but maybe you get Mark's tool and it makes it easier. I mean, there's so many things to consider. We want to give you every option here so that you can make the decision for the particular scenario you're in. Because you're not just developing if you're a professional developer for one person. You might be if you're an in-house developer, but you might have multiple databases there. But the point is that most developers are going to be working with a lot of different clients. There's a lot of different situations, and you need to know each one of these tools and have them on your belt and, and be understanding of which one works in best in which situation. Right. And you're only going to need to import data if you guys are not necessarily uh, programming live. The only time you would really need to import data in a development scenario is if you're programming on an offline copy or development copy. And then you need to, at some point, migrate live data into that development copy and put that into production. I think if you do pure live development, let's say make a layout change or even add a field, uh, there is no import. It's just development on a live database. And we're definitely going to talk about live development because that's a, a great uh, way to make changes. But there are some upsides and some downsides. But let's first talk about another method for updating your solution that was developed I'm not sure how long ago, pretty long ago. I can't remember when this feature came in that allowed for this to occur. I think it was probably FileMaker 7. And this is called the separation model. Now, that's not what FileMaker introduced. They introduced the ability to have a layout in, or I should say, the data in one file appear in another FileMaker file via a layout. You just simply 
create a, a reference to that file. You show the table on your relationship graph, and then you can make a layout, and it acts just like it was in the other file. There's no difference. And this is handy not just for the separation model, but really for any time you want to have multiple databases. You don't want to be flipping around between the different files. You just really want people to be in one window, and you can have stuff from different files if you happen to have different files. I, I personally like the single file approach, but sometimes you have big organizations and you split things up and you need to share that information. And that's why that feature came around. And then people said, oh, let's do the separation model, which is one file for interface, which would be layouts, scripts, value lists, and one file for data, which would be tables and fields. So do you guys use the data separation model, you Michael or Mark? Well, I certainly don't. I detest it. Can't see any any use for it except in very rare circumstances. But I could see it at some point in the past where you could just make changes to the interface file and then just drop a new file in and the data doesn't change. But it's just so much extra work and I just don't see the benefit of using it. I mean, you and I, John, have discussed this in you know, a podcast we did early on and neither of us are fans of it. What about you, Mark? What's your thoughts on it? Not a fan, never been a fan, never created a system that needed it, wanted it, had any use for it. I think the part of the compelling reason, and I think you guys definitely covered this in your previous podcast about this, um, is is the idea that you have these ginormous databases uh, from time to time, you know, in the gigabyte range. And uh, you, you, and these same large databases are typically used by large organizations. And large organizations are particularly uncomfortable with live development. And when you get that scenario, that triple witching, if you will, uh, you get to a situation where you have to develop offline. It's part of the requirements of the organization. So when you develop offline uh, and you make all these changes, it's most of them UI changes, but occasionally some fields. But to a typical developer that's in that scenario day in, day out, realizing that they have to import or export 30 gigs of data just to make a field change because that's what the organization mandates, that person is going to be very attracted to a separation model. Um, but that is sort of a rare situation or more rare than a typical developer would cross unless they're an internal developer for a large organization. So I can see uh, that argument sort of holds some, some, some weight. And I think today that argument holds a lot less weight because you have things like the data migration tool and so forth. Uh, Michael, I couldn't agree more. The fact that even adding a simple field to your schema kind of breaks down the whole scenario of having two files in terms of day-to-day -day development. But I do see a, an argument. If I just wanted to do a couple of layout changes and I'm going to put that in my interface file and I don't have to move 30 gigs of data and after everyone leaves for the night, I can just take this lightweight interface file, which is presumably very lightweight in size, throw it on the server, and now everyone has a new layout because that's what the organization mandates. I've just saved myself a ton of time. And it's worth the hassle of keeping and maintaining a separation model. But other than that, that particular scenario, there might be one other scenario, fellas. In a vertical market solution, you have many people using the same version or iteration of a system. And instead of having to import and export data for all those organizations, it might be nice to do a hot swap of an interface file for those same organizations in a, in a vertical market scenario. So I think it was birthed from that paradigm as well. You know, the interesting thing about the data separation model is that the three of us are against it. Overall, we don't like it. But I know quite a few people who do use it and absolutely love it and wouldn't think of not doing it that way. And I 
It's like, I don't get it. Yeah, here, here's my viewpoint on it. And, and I agree with everything that Mark and Michael have said, that there are situations where the separation model can be very helpful. Let's take an example of what it would require to add a field in the separation model. So imagine you're looking at the interface file, right? And you're going, oh yeah, okay, I need a new field to do this part here, I forgot about it. You have to go up to the window menu or somehow get to the other window, the data file, enter manage database, add the field, exit manage database, and then switch back to the window and continue going on. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a lot more repeated over and over and over and over again. It can add hours and hours and hours and frustration to your development, having to do so many more clicks. I'm all about, you know, less clicks to do something. I love it when I when I don't have to do very much to make something happen, like dynamic guides and in, in, in layout mode. They're great because I can I used to have to sit there and zoom in on the screen and, and use my arrow keys to do the pixels to get them just right because I couldn't tell if they're lined up or I maybe I'd drag out one of those those guides. But the dynamic guides just show up on the screen and and you know ninety percent of the time line up things the way I want them and it makes my life easier and I can do things faster. So the same is true for development. I want it to be as quick as possible. I want to get through this, charge my client less money, move on to the next person. I mean, I know Michael is really busy this week and he said, oh, you know, I, I think I can make this podcast. And, and that's a situation where, you know, you want to do things more quickly so you can get on to the next thing you need to do so you can, you know, go home and spend time with your wife and your children or whatever you want to do uh, in the evening. And that's what it really comes down to is spending less time doing things. And I think that ultimately the data separation model, it it doesn't it doesn't do that it it makes things harder to do on a, a very you know uh, basic level you know and it's also uh, i don't know whether i'm completely correct in this but it's very unusual when you are making changes on a system that you don't need to add fields and occasionally new tables so if you've got to go into the data file to do that why aren't you just doing it in one file anyway so it just sort of kind of defeats the purpose of, of having it because it actually doesn't save you a lot of work because changes to interface might be a new report, but you can do that easily without any downside while you're talking live. The two places where I see the data separation model being useful is when you're developing a mobile application that doesn't have any data and it's connected to the main file through the internet connection. There I can see it. And I can also see it where you've got an organization that's got some very, very, very big data files, hundreds of thousands or even millions of records. And those files are so big that they actually split them into a file for this set of data, a file for this set of data. So there you've got the data separation model being able to connect to multiple files at the same time that are big. I can see it there, but that's the only scenario. Do you guys remember when container fields were still were readily available in FileMaker? What version that was? Oh gosh, you're back. Yeah. <laughs> way back. Was it after seven? Uh, you know, it was before seven for sure. I think. <laughs> I can't remember. It's all a blur. Right. Well, I think I think here's a perfect scenario why maybe this was so popular when FileMaker seven came out. Seven allowed us to to make it feasible to do a data separation model. At that same time, containers were not capable 
of being externally stored. So what you had is a scenario where many of these files got extremely large because people were taking full advantage of the container technology and plowing tons of documents inside this, uh, the file, making them extremely large. Then thereby supporting the argument of, well, I just need a user interface change and I don't want to have to import data. So that's the scenario that happened. Now that external state containers were you know, born, now people don't have necessarily the large files that they did at one time because they are properly storing their large files outside of the actual FileMaker file using externally stored containers. So I think, again, with every passing era, we find less and less need to do this data separation stuff. Definitely. I, that's a great example. I, I love that one. And I'd have to completely agree with it. I think, I thought you were talking about container fields originally coming to, to be, but external storage, wow. Yeah, it was definitely after seven. Um, and so I think, you know, as far as the separation model having a life, it started in seven. And it, I think it's been going downhill as far as need uh, ever since then. And that's another great example of why you don't really need it anymore. You don't need to have that uh, that separation of data because, uh, you know, you can do things differently in FileMaker. Well, I think we've covered that subject. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about developing on a live database, which I'm a big proponent of. And I love it. I, I do it for... All my deployed solutions, I don't see any issues with it whatsoever. Well, there's some small issues, but uh, I'll we'll discuss those and we'll bring those up. But first thing we want to say is if you're going to develop on a, on a live solution, don't start from scratch and, and say new file and then put it up there and then start developing. I'm talking about you've gone through stage one, you've developed the solution, the, the client says, hey, that's great, that's exactly what I wanted. Let's put it on there and start entering data. And then ultimately what's going to happen is the client's going to come back and say, hey, you know what? We didn't think about this or the, we got feedback and or now we have a new business or something's happened. We need to make changes to it. I will typically do those on the live database. It all depends on a lot of situations. But before you even consider doing live development, which is perfectly valid in the FileMaker world, you're allowed to do that. You need to make sure that you have a fast and reliable internet connection. We were just talking before we started recording here about what kind of internet connections we have. And I have files. So I get a hundred up and a hundred down, which is more than adequate. It's very reliable. It's, it hardly ever goes down. And I feel comfortable connecting up to somebody's database and working on it live just as comfortable as I would be if I had it local and was working on a copy of it. Because in my opinion, there's only a little bit more chance that you're going to lose connection over the internet than you would on your hard drive. Both are susceptible to power outages. Hard drives aren't very reliable these days. Of course, they have the you know the the RAM based ones now, and those are uh, those are pretty reliable. But still, I mean, you know, things can get written wrong in either place. And the internet's so good these days that I feel very comfortable that if you also have a good backup schedule and a current backup before starting development that you're pretty safe in making changes to a live development, especially if they're small changes. You just want to add a field or you want to add a layout or add a report. 
That's what I'm talking about. Those are the things that people come back after you've developed it. They don't come back and say, hey, let's go ahead and do surgery on this file and, and add 14 new tables and 6,000 more fields. That's not usually what people ask for. And, and if that were the case, I'd probably say, hey, we're going to need to take it offline. But in 99% of what happens after the initial development, I feel comfortable doing live development. So leave it to you guys to talk about your opinions on it. Well, I do it as you do all the time. And for the most part, I'm completely comfortable with it. I will say that if I've got to make a lot of changes to the schema, then I prefer not to do it live. I prefer to just wait until the client's gone home for the day, and then I shut the file down on the server, I pull it down to my machine, work on it locally, and then put it back up before they get in the following day. But that's only if it's if there's a lot of work that, that I want to be in and out of the managed database. And I don't want to have the um, the message when I try and get out that somebody's modifying this record and now I've got to track that person down and tell them to get out. That's a very good point you make about uh, managed database. And let's talk about to make sure everybody understands. In FileMaker 5.0 v3, they made it possible. They, I'm talking about FileMaker Incorporated, or was it Claris? I can't remember at that point which five was. I think it was uh, FileMaker at that point. They made it possible for you to make schema changes. That's any change inside of managed database or defined fields, as it was called back then, and be all right. It's, there's only one situation where you can't do it, and it's when somebody's in the system and they have a record locked, and you try to create or modify a field, it's going to come back and say, hey, somebody's got this record locked. So it comes down to this is why... Michael might wait till after hours, or if you're in a small scenario, like maybe you have maybe five or 10 users on a system, you can easily contact any of these people and say, hey, can you move on? Or you, it'll ask you when you when you do this, do you, you want to send the person a message? And you can send them a message, say, hey, this is the developer. Can you uh, just quickly commit your record so I can get out of managed database? And then you'll be fine. So there's a lot of ways around this other than just taking the whole database down, which is a perfectly valid way to do it. But I, I prefer to work my eight to five hours. Well, we know you do, John. <laughs> but there is, a, there is a, you know, that point where, yes, you can send a message, but so many times somebody's in a, in a record, they've got a field open and they go off for a cup of coffee and they don't come back for 20 minutes. And uh, you can't do anything. And, you know, and at that point, the database is open and vulnerable to, you know, a power failure. And it's an un, it's a very tricky, you've got to be very aware of that possibility and, and manage it. I mean, sometimes I'll, you know, if I'm working, doing some live development, and I just say to everybody, listen, I need 30 minutes, just go shut it down, get out of it give me 30 minutes, go get a cup of coffee or take lunch or because I need to not have anybody working in it while I'm doing this. And, and let's be real clear about it. The only thing they can do is they could search the database. They could look at the database. They can produce a report. The only thing that's going to stop you from creating schema is if they're actually locked a record or editing it. That's the only thing. So if you tell them not to edit a record, that might be another way to get around that whole issue so they can stay inside the database. Yeah, if if they actually understand what you're talking about, a lot of people don't. Good point. <laughs> yeah. It, likewise, when you are making big schema changes and commits, uh, let's say you're changing a calculation that has to traverse many, many records, many thousands of records. It's technically possible for the developer themselves, us, to lock the table 
for all the users. So the same thing can happen in reverse. They can lock it on us from being able to make a simple field change, and we can lock it on them when we're making a calc change to a lot of records. So yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Yeah, we we I would say we probably run across situations where there are many times where we are not either allowed to or not. Um, it's not a best practice to do live development for many of our customers. Uh, but in the same token, many of our customers we do do live development, and a lot of times it comes down to what the customer wants and not so much what we want. Sometimes it's what we want, but a lot of times it's what the customer wants. And we find that the bigger, more sophisticated the customer, the less uh, interested they are in having us do any kind of live development because it breaks their policy, more of their IT policy than any other policy. Um, Just about every other platform that I can think of sort of encourages this idea of offline development before you make and commit changes to a production environment. Uh, so FileMaker is unique in that way because it is so simple to make a live change. And even in the even in these large organizations, they realize how simple it is. And sometimes uh, they'll be just as enticed and attracted to the idea of, well, all I need to do is move a field over. You know, let's not make this into a, a giant production. But so there's all kinds of scenarios. But I, I do, I feel of all the customers here at Productive Computing that we do development for, I feel about 25 to 30% of them, that's just a wild guess, just from my gut, will not be in a situation where we can do a live change, whereas 70% are in a position where we can do live changes. And that's where, of course, where the data migration tool, you know, and your wrapper comes, is so useful because it's very easy to deploy that solution and migrate it. The one thing, and I don't know, Mark, and you might talk about this, is when you've got a big database, how long does that migration tool take to actually move the data across into a new file. Compared to what we would call manual importing, you know, traditional importing from FileMaker file to FileMaker file, it is absolutely night and day in terms of speed. What might take, let's say, two hours to do manually could be somewhere less than a minute through the data migration tool. And that's because it's not going through the pomp and circumstance of record validation upon import. You know, when FileMaker imports a file from one file to another, it's going through a series of checks and balances and verifications and indexing. With the data migration tool, because FileMaker created it, they know how to move data without having to necessarily re-index it or uh, it's almost like a bulk move. They're taking all the data as chunks and bits and bytes and moving it as a giant container from one file to another. Uh, I don't believe they're going through a lot of the same um, formality that the traditional import process has to go through to keep everything uh, safe. Would you say that the 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 difference in speed from traditional import to using the data migration tool is faster or slower than performing a complex script on the server instead of locally? Data migration tool is absolutely faster than any other method that you could possibly imagine. Yep. Especially when it comes to things like container data, which is really bulky. Uh, The data migration tool will eat that up and spit it out. And what's interesting about the data migration tool is it's multi-threaded. So if you have a multi-core processor, it will take advantage of all those cores and start a thread for each one and do its process across all the processors. 
uh, pretty powerful. You know, this is a family show. We shouldn't be talking dirty on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we'll, we'll call it magic then, huh? How about that? Right, That'll right. to the kids. So it comes down to different types of methods and putting them on your tool belt. But I think we've quickly and easily, as far as what we're trying to talk about in this podcast, which is taking your information from one version of your solution to another, or not at all by using live development, it seems to me that that importing manually and scripting is usually not the best choice, unless maybe you have a one table solution that's really simple or something like that, or, or it doesn't happen very often. The data migration tools can be faster. Uh, it's going to do everything and keep your life, you know, it's going to keep your life the way you want it to, which is enriched with non-FileMaker stuff. I love FileMaker, but I, I like to go home in the evening and, and watch a few shows and talk to my wife and make some dinner. And those are things I like to do, and I don't want to be stuck overnight and doing that stuff. So that and developing in a live database seem to be the choices right now. But there are some other choices here that we could look at and uh, talk about, which is uh, syncing software. And I think this is something you want to talk about, especially, Mark. Yes, well, um, there's a lot of different solutions for syncing these days, and uh, we have tried just about everything. And uh, I think you have to pick the right tool for the right job is what it boils down to. And you also have to pick a tool that you can live with. Um, not all developers are created equal. So when you're, when you're thinking about a team of de developers, you want to think about, am I introducing a technology that's beyond the sophistication of the particular developer using that technology for the customer? You also have to think about the customer. You know, what is their level of sophistication? Because uh, the more complicated it gets, the more it's going to cost as a general rule. So a lot of times, guys, and I know you are famous for this, is it's not so much that we can do it, but should we do it? So when it comes to the, the topic of synchronization, the very first thing we try to do is determine, is this a two-way synchronization with conflict resolution, or is this a one-way push? And if you present it like that, the customer says, oh, I didn't realize there was a difference. And then we go down that whole rabbit hole of explaining synchronization and what it is, what it isn't, because to the customer, it means something completely different than it does to us as developers. So we have to interpret that, consult with them, and try to lead them into the right direction. Now, isn't syncing software usually for distributed systems, not for upgrading to a new version of, a, of your solution? Well, it's funny you mention that because we've got a few customers actually using sync tools, um, you know, automated sync tools. And, and now there's two types of syncing we're talking about. We're talking about... Uh, potentially deployment tools that allow you to make the migration of data and deployment of that. That's one type of tool, which is sometimes gets misnamed as a sync. I, I like to call those deployment tools. And then there's syncing tools that try to keep two systems aligned, their data aligned between two systems. And to your point, John, and try to answer your question, there are some customers where we are doing offline development meaning we are doing development in a non-production server. But we want to have data that's pertinent and relevant to both the developer and the users testing that data. So what we might do is we might deploy a solution that pulls the live data, syncs it to the development data so that we have something relevant to test on and something real world as an example. And that's, that's a common situation. Now, 
the huge advantage of that besides you know a better testing environment is that now when you're ready to go live with that development copy there's really no data to move you've already it's already been syncing the whole time so you just take the development copy and literally put it online with no import necessary because it has been continuously importing using automated sync tools are you comfortable mentioning what product you guys have settled on at this point we've tried a few we've tried the easy sync we've worked with um and a lot of times, guys, it's not really us choosing. It's the customer has chosen the sync tool that they choose, or they, you know, they've they've favored one or the other. And for us, we're not necessarily passionate about it, but um, we do use the 360 Mirror Sync uh, as well. Our customers do, and then we help them deploy that. We've got as a hosting company, we do run across the 360 uh, Mirror Sync quite a bit. We actually offer that as a service that people can pay for. If they want to have a mirror sync solution hosted, we, we have the knowledge to set that up and deploy it and help maintain it. So yeah, that's that's one tool that we use. Um, you know, it does every the, the topic of synchronization is sticky. And I can think back to a conversation with Rick Kalman in front of some this must have been at least 10 or 15 years ago. And someone raised their hand and said, Rick. Is FileMaker ever going to have a sync solution and a built-in, you know, Claris certified sync solution? And Rick sort of, I think he kind of dodged the question and basically said either I don't know or I doubt it or, you know, do we ever want to go there? I really haven't made a determination to go there. In other words, it is not easy, guys. It's just one of those things that sounds easy, but in the end, it's uh, riddled with complications. Yeah, I love this uh, whole idea of, of having a copy of the database locally and it's syncing with the main database. And so you've got the data to work with. You've got all of it in there. I mean, it just, it, it's such a cool idea. Does it, does it slow down your process at all or, or make you stop at any point? Uh, I don't think so because a lot of that happens in such a way that doesn't cause a lot of record conflicts or, you know, conflict um, record locking. It does. And then when you add a field, you simply add it to the sync process at that time so that you're constantly keeping up to date with, oh, I added four fields, so I got to make sure they sync. And then you kind of do that while you're in development and you kind of take care of that before it becomes a problem down the road. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful on the large systems and for the critical systems that don't have the ability to really go down for several hours. They just, they just can't live that way. So these are some of the solutions we've come up with. So since I don't do this myself, and I don't know if Michael does, and that's why I'm so kind of asking these basic questions about how you do this, it sounds to me like what you're saying is it's not automatically syncing in the background all the time. You guys have to tell it when to actually do the sync. And so you could be done developing for the day and say, hey, hit the sync button. And it does it whatever it has to do an hour or two hours or overnight. And then when you come back in the morning, you have all the relevant up-to-date data. Well, the choice is yours on how, how you do it and how often, but no, actually we do keep it on automatic syncing. I think the point I was making is that if you add a field, you have to accommodate that field uh, so that the sync process knows that a new field has been introduced. That's, that's all I was saying. Um, but that's just a, a formality of developing in a database. But no, it would all happen automatically in the background, you know, every whatever, every periodically, however it's set to run. You can choose how often it runs and things like that. Because when I was living in France, it was wonderful because I would, at the time that my clients were, were going home was when I was actually going to work. 
So they would finish for the day. I'd have the file for eight hours without, you know, during the day without them needing to be used it. And by the time they came in the following morning, all the changes had been made. So it was the best of both worlds. But there, the time zone really worked. Time change really worked for me. Right. Right. And this is a, you know, this is a particular situation. I mean, obviously we've developed and you guys too have developed for, you know, 20, 30 years without having to do this exact scenario. It really is a special circumstance that requires it. And that's large databases, deployments that are developed offline and test data that needs to be relevant. Because one thing that I, when I asked my developers some of these questions, they all said the same thing, that the key to having a successful development environment offline is to have data that makes sense. Because when you're testing, if you're testing data that isn't real world, you won't get the same results. And we have found that a good percentage of bugs are not because we program something incorrectly. It's because the data that we are testing against wasn't expected and therefore there's bugs. So I don't know if you guys have run across that, but so many situations, especially in the QuickBooks world where we're trying to integrate QuickBooks, QuickBooks is very particular about the data that it receives. It's very, very particular. For instance, if you try to send a PO number that has more than 25 characters, QuickBooks will reject it. So if you're doing test data where all your PO numbers are five digits, you're going to think, hey, this thing's working great. We tested it six ways to Sunday. We couldn't find a single bug. Day one, the customer goes and tests their data and it breaks. And then you look like a fool. I thought you guys tested this. No, it's probably because we didn't test it with the right data. Yeah, that makes that makes very, you know, very sound advice, Mark. Very. And, you know, it's always as a developer, one of the hardest things to do, especially when you're starting a solution, is to have meaningful data and avoid having to put in just junk or import a set of sample data it means much more if you can actually look at what the client's doing and and their data sets so i almost always insist on getting some data that i can import to start the solution and then just build it out from there yeah there i i emphasize this a lot in in my teachings and there are so many examples out there you know maybe you're uh, trying to import some phone numbers and you assume there's going to be 10 digits, but sometimes there's a one in front of the numbers. Sometimes there's some formatted, uh, some formatting on those phone numbers and it doesn't import or validate correctly when you import it. Or maybe you're trying to massage some data that you've imported. Maybe the, the data you had had the city, state, and zip in one field or one column and you had to use a script to, to parse it out. Well, you need to know what the data looks like in order to parse it correctly. Maybe you're looking at duplicates and trying to find them and, and duplicate checking in one database not may not be exactly the same in another one because they may not have the same fields. It may not be the same kind of data. So you always have to have some kind of realistic data in order to really, you know, make sure you don't introduce bugs or, or program it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Data is a big thing. And, and a lot of times we'll ask our users to help test because they know their system better than we do in many cases uh, when it comes to, I like to put it this way. We make the race car, but they're the ones driving it. And that really does paint a picture to say, well, we're experts. We know how to make cars and put things together and make it go fast, but we don't know the track or how it's going to behave once they get it behind the wheel. So uh, with that in mind, they test much better with data they understand and can see that makes sense to them. 
And it's also part of the process of developing a successful solution is making sure that it's easy for them to enter the data. And what better way than to have them do it and say, oh, yeah, this was great, but I keep falling down here. This really annoys me. Yeah, so true. And um, I think that's all I wanted to say about that as far as as far as that goes. There was one other thing that a developer brought up when when talking about user testing. And that is a lot of times we'll introduce, when working live, we'll introduce a script, a new script, and then have a developer flag that toggles between script A or script B, meaning script B would be the one that we're trying to, to test and introduce to them. So um, by, by including a developer flag, it allows you to do live development in a much safer environment. In other words, you're flying with a safety net. So I don't know if you guys do that when you're trying to do tests on a live system. And again, I don't want to change the subject too much, but to have this this notion of a developer flag indicating whether they're in test mode or in actual user mode. I've done it on occasion, but usually in the case of a script, I'll just double click on the button and change it to the new script or the old script. Easy enough for me. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, I think a lot of times we'll we'll be in a situation where some users are testing, let's say three out of 10 are testing and then the rest are not testing. So, you know, it could be sophisticated enough to just say, okay, these three users are testers, so we'll make sure the flag sets for them. And then for the others, we'll make sure the flag is not set for them. Stuff like that. No, that I could climb on board with. If if it was really a serious situation and, and you wanted everybody to still be you know, efficient and, and get their work done. You could just say these two people are using the script and have that little toggle could make it quite, uh, quite easy to make that change and not make it for everybody. So while we're on the topic of sophisticated uh, customers, the ones that are sort of enterprise level, a lot of times what will come, what will happen is a mandate that says there, there is no live development within our ecosystem. It's just something that they simply do not allow. It's not a best practice for their organization. And you'll find that, you know, in a perfect world, you don't want to do anything that destroys production, compromises production in any way, slows production, halts production, interrupts it. So with that in mind, the notion is, well, you develop offline and you and you basically make all your mistakes behind the curtain, if you will. So when that happens, and it happens more often than you might think, we'll introduce the idea of a development server. And in some cases, uh, and another server will have a total of three servers. So server number one is development. That's a server that only the developers get to work with. It's, it's behind the scenes. It's something only developers have access to. No users, nothing. Then you'll have a second server called testing. And that's where both the developers and the users have access to. And it allows them to do testing. And again, it's a staging area. A lot of times it's called a staging server. And then finally, you have your actual production server, which is the live data, the day-to-day -day usage, you know, um, the main system. So in those situations, uh, we do actually have three servers. It's, it's pretty rare, but it does happen where they want that sort of um, implementation. We've got one customer whose data is so sensitive that we as developers, even though we have full access to the database, we cannot see any of the data. So it sounds crazy. How can you have full access to a database when you're not allowed to see the data? So we have full access to the schema and we have access to the data once it's been scrubbed and cleaned and that we can develop with. But then when they actually go live, we hand them the development copy and they have to do 
the importing slash migration, they call it the migration themselves. In other words, no developer on our team can actually see the data. And it comes down to things like um, social security numbers, first names, last names, basically any kind of proprietary data. This is again in the financial world uh, where it, the mandate is no developers or nobody outside this certain clearance can see the data. So it can get that crazy in, in, in some of these scenarios. Which would make it not possible to do live development, as I've said, and, and there's always exceptions, right? And that's why I keep talking about this tool belt. You know, you need for those scenarios where they're not common, you need to have a solution for it. And here's one solution that you have. You know, you can let the client do the data migration. It's pretty interesting what comes up. And, and as a developer, I think you need to think creatively like that because not everybody's going to fall into the live development or the data migration. You know, I think those are the two main approaches we're saying, develop offline data migration tool into it or do live development. I think that's probably what 90% of the people out there are doing right now. But this other 10%, this esoteric stuff, you might need to do a manual import. You might need to script that import. You might need to do synchronous synchronization. You might need a, you know, different servers so you can have production servers and test servers and staging beta servers. You know, there's all kinds of things that are out there and being aware of them, not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to know everything about every one of these techniques, but be aware of what's possible with them. It's the same thing I always say, like I use, you know, let's say there's 300 calculation functions in FileMaker. I don't know all three of the, or all 300 of them intimately. I know about 50 of them intimately, but I know about those other 250, what their possibilities are. And if I have to use them, then at least I know they're there and I can go get them and learn more about them if I need to use them for a client. Well, it's like there is, you know, in development, as in this scenario, there is no one way to do anything. You know, you can take a problem and five, People will look at that problem and solve it a different different way. Neither they're all right. None of them are wrong. Um, so it's the same thing with data migration and development tools. There are there's the right solution for the right person and the right situation. You know, but when it comes to really sensitive data, I try never to work for mafia. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> Sometimes we don't want to know the data that's in some of these systems, right? Yeah, correct. The reason why enterprises are so used to development situations, offline development, is because every other platform sort of encourages that or it's sort of built, purpose built to be able to do that out of the box. And FileMaker really never was. And I think that's that's why there's a controversy around separation model. That's why we're even having this podcast at all, because there are so many ways to do it. And uh, it's interesting that FileMaker is so flexible, but you do have to talk these things through because it's important to know you have choices and uh, there is no necessarily right answer. Well, there's a right answer depending on the right questions. So I might be speaking out of my rear end at this point, but I don't think those other database solutions or applications out there even allow you to do live development. It's not even a thought. It's not possible to do it. And therefore, that's the only way they've ever done it. They don't understand what the possibilities are with live development, what the advantages are. And if there's a system that's been developed over three decades and it's allowing to do it. And since 50v3, you've been able to do the schema changes on a live solution. 
you better believe they've worked out the bugs out of it. It's pretty good. It's going to, it's going to work properly. And that doesn't mean you have to use it all the time, but I think that's what people don't understand. And, you know, if you're in the Oracle world, oh, it's not very forgiving. FileMaker's forgiving. Oracle isn't. You have to plan everything to the nth degree before you go in there. And so when you want to make some changes, you're definitely going to do it offline. There's no way it's going to be live database changes. It's just a different way of life, a different way of doing things. And there are some gotchas with live development FileMaker, and you need to watch out for those, and we've mentioned those. So be careful about them, but if you know about them, it's it's generally a fairly safe situation. If you have those backups, you can always fall back on the backup if you make a big mistake, uh, but you know if you're safe and you, and you do things with knowledge, you can do a lot of live development in FileMaker and get away with it and not have any problems at all. There is a, a point to, to that that I want to bring up, is that outside of people like us who have been developing with FileMaker for decades, people who aren't familiar with FileMaker just simply do not comprehend or understand how fast you can make changes in FileMaker. What would take hours using to do in Oracle, you could do in a minute or two with FileMaker. So the platform itself allows for that rapid development and allows you to go in and make changes on the fly as you need to because they can be done so quickly. Yeah, because it's been programmed that way from the beginning and and Oracle wasn't or whatever database solution you want to talk about. FileMaker has been that way all along, so they've got all the checks and balances in there. It's a perfectly fine thing to do. I, I remember talking to the development team and saying, hey, why are you guys, you know, so down on live development? And, and I, I had a long discussion with them and I've talked to them a lot about it and, and they say, well, the hiss and that, and, you know, and they never really pinpoint anything except that they're concerned about it a little bit and they don't want to recommend it. I think it's the point is that they, they don't really want to commit themselves and then be under legal, uh, a legal situation where they get sued because they said that, yeah, you can do live development and, I really honestly believe that's where they're coming from. I couldn't sp- say for sure, but but I can tell you that I have had lengthy discussions with them and they don't really have any great reasons why you can't do live development. And I bring up the point in 503 V3, you guys, you know, allowed schema changes. So what's the, what's the issue? Why did you do that? And, and I never get really a straight answer out of it. So I think we need to understand that, that FileMaker allows you to do it. I've been doing it for 20 years. I've never had an issue with live development and it's okay to do, and, and it's okay to do it. Any of the other ways we talked about, do what you feel you're comfortable with. I think that's the key. Do what you feel you're comfortable with. What I find that uh, a, best, a perfect marriage is do live development, but then have a copy locally as a reference of the system. That way, if you're doing a complex script that's going to do a, a big routine on a lot of records, you can test it offline. That way, you're confident the script is going to work and you don't have to actually test it with live data. Then when you're confident, just copy and paste the script into the live system, assign a button, and you're done. I like that idea. You're saying make a copy of the database, develop the script offline, and then copy and paste the script once it's done into the live system. Yep. Then there's absolutely no failure uh, potential or a lot less failure potential because you're testing on data that no one's ever going to see. Yeah. Absolutely. With Yeah. The only time you get in trouble with live data, by the way, because you do have to say there's always an exception, is if you're using email addresses and you're planning a campaign of sorts or a reminder system, you don't want to actually be doing actual emails to people that are live. So what we'll do a lot of times is take any email that we might be using in a script 
and just put it to our own email so that if anyone gets an alert, it's us and not real people during testing. Yep. Done that many, many times. So is it about the end, Michael, do you think? I think we've covered it. I think we've talked this to death. It's just about an hour. It's a, you know maybe a little bit longer, but uh, it's a good uh, good conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground and I think we've answered a lot of questions. So another situation that you have here is that you're doing development on a remote system and it's live development and you're working with a local version of your FileMaker Pro Advanced and you're connected beautifully to the system and you're doing your changes. What you'll find is there's certain scenarios where you are under the a uh, situation where performance is terrible because you happen to have a routine that replaces 10,000 records as part of a script you're developing. And what you quickly realize is that when you're working over a wide area network, replacing 10,000 records across multiple fields is going to take a long time. So what a lot of times we'll do is set up somehow a terminal server or a remote machine that's local to the network of our customer. That way, when we're doing those kinds of situations, replacing data, exporting a ton of data, importing a ton of data, any kind of uh, situation where you're working with a lot of records at the same time, do that on a terminal server or a remote machine that's local to that network. Then you're getting that done at light speed. And you really, again, back to saving the customer money, this is a way to do it. But I've seen so many developers sit there and just look at the screen while 10,000 records are replacing and thinking that that's just okay. It's like, no, let's find a way to do those changes you know, on the server, do them locally, find a way to get around the slow wide area network problems that are inherent with live development. Yeah, good point. Absolutely. I've, I've been in situations where things take a long time on, on wide area networks before. And I usually just write the scripts with test data and then have the user who's over locally you know, in the, in the in the local area network, have them run the scripts themselves because it goes so much faster and I don't have to charge them to babysit the file and my computer's not being used up and things like that. So there's lots of different ways. Now, if you have a lot of money, the terminal service is a really cool way to do it. So I was going to, I was going to tell you that I have a, had a client and I had to do a big update and I said, it's going to take a, a while for this to run because I didn't have, it wasn't a situation where you could have a terminal server. And he said, is this billable time? I said, no, it's nap time. <laughs> nap time, right. <laughs> While it's doing it, you take your nap. And the other thing, too, is that we sometimes forget as developers is if you do have a situation we're going to replace records, consider a server-side script. Consider perform script on server. There is nothing more powerful than that when you're talking about re uh, data manipulation. Gosh, just set up a server-side script. Now, it does take a little bit more thinking. You've got to be a little bit more careful about it. But boy, what a what a difference that makes! Yeah, I think most people think of server side scripts with uh, mobile devices, but you can use them anytime you want. You want to you want to offload all that work to the server. Now, it could possibly slow down the server though, too, right? Um, not any more than if you went to that server manually, opened up FileMaker, and did the routine while the server was running in the background. So unless you have a really slow or old machine, the users may not see much of an impact of the server doing its thing. I mean, yeah, technically it does take a little bit of a performance uh, hit, but in most cases, guys, I would say that if anyone noticed, I'd be very surprised. Of course, it depends on the server and things like that, but running server-side routines now, usually the users don't notice for the most part. I mean, everything depends, but for the most part, even when the server is running server-side routines, you'll look at the processor like on a typical Mac server or even a Windows server. It's it's a it's a long day before you see it get above 30% CPU, even running some heavy-duty server-side scripts. It's just FileMaker sort of efficient that way, kind of runs in a single thread at the moment for that kind of thing. 
So yeah, we don't see too much of a problem there as far as um, performance running server-side scripts. Good information, definitely. Well, I don't have anything to add. You two seem to have been doing most of the talking, but uh, you know more about it than I do, so there you go. So there's one other thing when you're working in a live system. If you're working with security changes and you're working at the field level where you've defined databases and you're working on defining security, and you've got a situation where uh, you're in the fields, the table where you're allowing fields, where you're allowing table data to be secure or not secure based on a condition. Once you make that change, it doesn't automatically take hold necessarily until the user logs out and logs back in. So we've seen situations where if you're making security changes and schema changes where security is um, at that fidelity level, you might have to have, ask the user to log out and log back in. And that makes sense because imagine if you're changing, let's say, their privilege set or you're changing their password. It's not they've got to they've got to log out and log back in for those security changes to take effect. I would imagine the whole thing, the whole entire security section is that way. Yeah, for the most part, you know, security is checked at various places, but it's checked mostly upon open and then whatever script you're running to determine what security they're going to have uh, if you've incorporated script security as well. So yeah, a lot of times you'll think that you fix something, you test it and it works for you and the user still says, no, it's not working. Uh, oh, log out, log back in. And then like magic, it works again. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion about developing solutions beyond the initial development stage, beyond stage one, when the client comes back to you and says, hey, I want some changes. How do you approach that? We've talked about all different types of approaches, the old school importing, manual importing, the scripted import, the data migration assistant. We've talked about which one of those works best in which situation. We've talked about the dreaded separation model and both Michael and I hate it. And I think Mark is, is on his way to hating it, but I won't speak for him. <laughs> and We've talked about my favorite developing on a live database and Mark gave his input and you know, that's typically works well if you don't have large database situations where maybe you have a big client who doesn't want you to do that. They want you to work offline, but you know, developing on a live database works pretty good. We've talked about syncing software. We've talked about production servers, test servers, staging servers, you know, all kinds of things you can do to get around or properly work on a solution given the situation. And what I mean is that probably you're going to do it most of the time on live development or use a data migration tool to get the data into a new version of it. But there's all these other various tools that you can put on your belt to help you get through this whole process. So we're glad you spent some time with us. Please leave any ideas about other types of of methods for working on existing deployed solutions that you might have that we haven't considered. We love the feedback. Please let us know. Well, I'm Michael Rashad, signing off. And my name is John Mark Osborne, and we also have... Mark LaRochelle, Productive Computing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.